us read our uh, mission statement we're in this series. If you would read that and repeat after me and follow through, let's all say that together. The purpose of this church shall be to glorify God. It shall seek to attain this end through the public worship of God, the preaching of the scriptures, consistent Christian living by its members, personal evangelism, missionary endeavors, and Christian education. That is what our faith and mission, our purpose is all about. That's If somebody wants to know and ask you who we are, what we are about, that's what you could say, which covers all aspects of who we are as a church. Amen? One definition of a local church in the series of our continuing series on the compelling church community, the definition of a local church, I'm glad you asked what a definition of a local church is. It's a togetherness and a commitment we experience that transcends all natural bonds because of our commonality in Jesus Christ. You've heard me say it many times. It's the fact that God takes all of us from all of our backgrounds, from all of our experience, from all four corners of the earth, wherever we may come from, and how he supernaturally brings us together as a church to cause us to glorify him. How he does that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, our commonality is what we have in Jesus Christ. Above everything else. I mean, I have, I have a brother, I have a sister, I have a wife, I have uh, two sons and a daughter and, and a mother. All the, That's great. But what transcends all of that is our commonality of who we are in Jesus Christ. To be honest, that really supersedes our fleshly tie together. It's the fact that we are in Jesus Christ. Got it? So I may not be physically related to anybody here, but know this for sure. Who we are, the God in you, meets the God in me. And because of that, that gives us a common ground to which we can come together. And because of that, we're going to learn some things about our great love. Over the last few weeks, uh, you've heard me use this term, supernatural. And somebody might be asking the question, what are you exactly talking about, Pastor? What do you mean by supernatural? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. In case you didn't, I'm going to ask it for you. It says, by supernatural, I'm not just simply implying about that mystical or vaguely spiritual sense in which pop culture uh, uses the term, you know, something really super spiritual and it's kind of out there. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is the biblical idea of a sovereign God working in space and time to do what confounds the natural laws of our world. Let me read that again. It is a sovereign God working in space and time to do what confounds the natural laws of our world. How God works in and through us to bring us to this point confounds the natural world where we might have every reason to disagree We may have every reason maybe not to like somebody, yet the supernatural effect of God is he brings us together. That's all of God. Because I can remember back in the day where it was Clarktown versus the Hill Jakes. One side over here, one side over there. 
Now I don't hear much about that anymore because we're all blended together and we're all related somehow, some way. The fact that God will take all of us and bring us and cause us to have that one thing in Christ and how he supernaturally does that speaks to a sovereign God. When you read in the New Testament, when you read in the New Testament about God, where he says neither Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free, all of that, that's an amazing thing. For you have a diverse group of people. It would be similar today if we said black, white, rich, poor, Indian, non whatever, all, the, all kindreds, all. If there's a church that's made up of that, how all those different peoples would come together is by the supernatural power of God. Whether you have a lot of money or no money, in the economy of God, it does not make any difference. That's what I love about God. In, in our culture today, it's all about what you got. In the economy of God, it don't make difference. If you and I are honestly giving God, if you're giving God his rifle due and $5 is all you have to give, now I'm not saying that's all you could give, but that is the, the maximum, the totality of who you, what you're able to give, whether you give 5 or 500 in the eyes of God, it doesn't make any difference. God doesn't look at the person giving 500 and say, well, because you gave a lot, then therefore you have a, you have a, have a better seat. No. The 5 and the 500 are equal in the eyes of God. Only God is able to do that. So when we talk about supernatural, that's what I'm talking about, how a sovereign God is able to do that in the church. And we started this whole series with the, with the premise that if God's presence, if God's presence is with us, then we're able to do what the Bible talks about of being the church that God wants us to be. But if God's presence is not here, then we are not going to be able to live to a dying world what the Bible mandates that we are to do. What does it tell us to do? Well, I'm glad you asked that question too. So you got a lot of questions. I'm trying to answer them for you. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus gives us our command. The commander-in-chief, our leader, our Lord, our Savior, our God, our boss, whatever you want to call him, gives us his final parting words to us. And here's what he says. He says, go therefore. Go. That's not the command, but we're to go. Therefore, and make disciples. There you go. That's the command part of it. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what we're to be about. We don't have to come up with plans on what the church is supposed to do. We have to come up with plans on what we need to do. We've already been told what to do. Two parts. Number one, we're to evangelize. A church that does not evangelize is going to have a hard time. We have to, not just cornerstone, but any church that's legitimate has to go out and be about evangelizing. And I was telling our Sunday school class, I wake up, Brother Greg, many times in the middle of the night, wrestling with God, asking God, help me answer this question. Lord, please give me the wisdom. How do we communicate the love of, a, the love of God to a world that totally denies who God is? How do we go and evangelize when the most majority of people don't even want to hear about the good news of the gospel, could care less about God. And yet, Jesus tells us, listen, I'm commanding, this is a command, go therefore and baptize. That's one. 
We're to go out and evangelize. Number two, part of that, is that we're to teach. We're to teach what? We're to teach each new generation of converts, everybody that comes to Christ, that from the outside, if they were to come in today and join our church, we have a responsibility to, number one, to evangelize, number two, to baptize, and number three, to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We are what we would say in the vernacular of some people of some church, we're the disciple. Because if you come into the church, you don't know how to live for Jesus. Where are you going to get that? you got to get it in the church. And the church has the responsibility to teach you and I how to live for Jesus. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Because many people think they don't need to be taught. But I'm here to tell you, oh, yeah, you do. Because you're not as smart as you think you are. Because you just don't know. You think you know, but you don't know. But you will know if you avail yourself to the teaching of what I love to call the local church. I love the local church. I've been accused of, that's all you talk about, the local church, the local church, the local church. That's all I know is the local church. I love her enough that I realize that we're not doing what God wants us to do. We got to be out evangelizing. We got to be out baptizing. We got to be out teaching people. And when I look at our church and I look at other churches where people are not availing themselves to those three components, and especially about the teaching, they elect not to come and do because they think they don't need to come and do. Listen, I, here's what it is, really. We as churches have allowed to lower the standard of what God wants us to be. We need to get back to what the old timers would call the old landmark, where there are really no excuses. For us not doing what God wants us to do. That's what they did back in the olden days. But pastor, you don't understand. I've got, well, baby, I appreciate that. But I, you back to the old pastor, they just told you, I expect you to be here. They didn't, you know, well, pastor, I got to work. Well, they always would tell you, but I'm glad you got to work, but you still need to be here. But pastor, you don't say anybody to go to work, I'll get fired. Well, you know what? Yeah, they understood that, but their premise was to put the demands on. This is what it takes. Not minimal. Minimal, but the maximum effort that you and I have to put into to live for God. We talked about it in the book of John. The wide gate and the what? Narrow. Let me tell you something. A lot of us enjoy going through the wide gate. Why? Because it's the popular way. Everybody's doing that. But that narrow gate, what does the Bible say? There are few there be that are able to go through it. Because the demands of the narrow gate are very demanding. Amen. In the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, we have an interesting parable here. Luke chapter 7, 4, 5, 6, 7. Brother Milt read this in your hearing. I'm not going to break it down so much verse by verse. I'm just going to give you the highlight and the key part of what the verse is. What he's really, Jesus, you know why Jesus spoke in parables? Because many times he would speak in parables so that people, those that were spiritually unattuned, they would be like some of us are. Huh? What does that, what does that mean? What did he just say? You ever, been, you ever, been, somebody says something, you just like, they talk for 10 minutes and you go, Huh? I don't know what they just, I have no clue what they just said. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. But if you're spiritually attuned, 
If the Spirit of God meets the Spirit in you, meets the Spirit of God in Jesus, you'll be able to understand what he understood, what he was trying to say. And in this situation, you have an interesting parable because what happens is, and I'm going to read it for you real quickly and then just give you the, the main gist of what he's trying to say. He says, one of the Pharisees, if you know anything about Pharisees, there you go. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, you got to realize they didn't sit down in chairs like we do. They, a lot of times they would just recline, lay back, you know, lean on the pillows, you know. It's like if you come to my house and I run out of chairs and tables, we just say, just, you know, we get comfortable sometimes. We just sit on the floor and just lean back, you know. You ever just lean back every now and then? Okay, you got the picture. Good. They were reclining at the table. He says, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, bought, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wipe his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he doesn't say, we are sinners. <laughs> he says, oh, she's a sinner. Well, okay, brother, uh, we're all sinners. But she, because of who she was, and see, don't get, don't get messed up about the fact that the Bible tells us who this woman is. She's a woman of the city. She didn't have a good reputation, but she is a smart woman. See, that's my problem with a lot of us. Some of us are so smart, we're, we're dumb. She understood who she was and where she came from. But, oh, by the end of time, we get to the end of this verse, these verses, she's gonna, we're going to find out she was way smarter than that Pharisee was. Because he looked at the outward and did not see what was on the inside. He says, you know, he looks at her and he says, if he's looking at Jesus, if this man was, a, if he was a real prophet, oh my God, he would have known, dude, you don't need to be, she don't need to be all over you. Like, you don't know who she is. You know how we get. People smell a certain way. People look a certain way. People have a certain reputation. And we're like, oh, you know, the pastor, you don't need to be, brother, you don't need to be around her. You just don't know. But you, you, know, you get to be seen with her or him and you get a bad, you get, you get a bad reputation. People be talking about you, pastor. People be talking about you, brother or sister. Sometimes Jesus wasn't worried about all that. And that Jesus answering said to him, because Jesus understood what he was about. Simon, interesting, for people who don't like their names called out. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answers. Say it, teacher. Be careful what you ask for. He gives this illustration. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt for both. Isn't that great? Wouldn't you like somebody to cancel your debts? Well, I knew I'd get amen on that one. He says he canceled the debt of both, not just the one with the five and the 500, but both of them, 50 and the five, but both of them. Now, question, which of them will love him more? 550, who would love more? Well, Simon says, easy. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Okay, let me go with that. He said to him, you have judged rightly. All right, that makes sense. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, brother. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears 
and wiped them with their hair. That was a custom back then. If you traveled, they would pour water basin, a basin of water. And because of your travels across the dusty roads, they didn't have cars, they didn't have Nike tennis shoes and all of you know, the fancy shoes we have. They, part of a custom of hospitality would be you would wash the others, other people's feet. Now, we live in a culture that we don't want to touch anybody's feet. Now, some of you may have beautiful feet. My wife has good-looking feet, I have to admit. Not because she's my wife, because it's, it's true. But it's a rare thing. My feet you don't want to mess with. And some other people in here, I know we don't, yeah, okay. But I understand. But that was the custom. They would wash each other's feet. He says, I came, you didn't wash my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. She gave him some expensive Oil. I mean, it's like going to Macy's or some of these places and buying some of the most expensive perfume and then pouring it out. You know, some of us are very conservative on how we use our good smells. You know, we ain't using it for every day. That special stuff that we got, we only use on certain occasions. Why? Chanel number five. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not using that every day when I just go to the Wilmington College. It's got to be on a certain occasion. You know, something special like the banquet, then I can splurge a little. Okay, got, got the picture? He's looking at her doing all this, and he's, he's having a hard time. He says, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with oil. Therefore, because of all of this, I tell you, her sins, which are many, and they were many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, well, wait a minute, who is this who even forgives sins? And he answered to the woman, your faith, ah, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay? We there? Are we there? Okay, we have a, we'll paint the picture. We have a sinful woman. We have this man by the name of Simon who's watching. We have the parable, how a man forgiven a great debt loves his creditor more than a man forgiven of a small debt. Here's the point. He says, her sins, verse 47, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he is who is forgiven little, loves little. See, if you don't know, and I don't know, and I think we live in a world today where we as Christians do not understand to the great extent that God has gone to forgive us. If you think you're all right, and your stuff don't smell, you love little. Why? Because you think you're all right. You're comparing yourself to other people. I'm not as bad as pastor. Oh, no, no, no. That, man, that dude's messed up. I'm not as bad as some guy on the street that you know. Oh, they really messed up. So in, in that event, we're, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong thing. He says, for she loved much. Why? He already told us her sins, which were many. She understood where she had come from. She understood what she had been delivered, been delivered from. So she understood that, oh, I, I, I'm not on the little side of the equation. I'm on the big side. In light of who I am and my reputation, what people think about me, I understand that what God has done for me. 
And my question to all of us today, even as a church, do you and I understand for you personally, do you really get what God has done for you? And to what great extent he has forgiven you? Don't worry about me. Don't worry about that person sitting on the other side. What, to what extent has God's forgiveness been to you? And if it's been a great thing for God to forgive you of your mess, and only you know how messed up you are. I don't got to tell you how messed up you are. Michael Jackson said, the man in the mirror, if you look at yourself in the mirror and you could go back in your life and you see where God has, how messed up you were, honestly with yourself, God had no reason to bring me where I am today, but he did out of his great grace and mercy. And because of that, that's why my love for him is great because I understand what he has done for me. The Pharisee thought he was forgiven by God because how well he loved God. But that appears to be what Jesus is saying, but it's really not. We love people so that God will love us. That's how we negotiate with God. God says I'm to love everybody, so therefore, I got to love everybody. Not that we really want to. Not that we really would like to. But we say with God, God, you already tell us, you already told me that in order for me to love you, I got to love other people, so I'm going to love other people. Hmm, how's that working for us? Probably not too well. Jesus continues, he who is forgiven little loves little. Love doesn't cause forgiveness. Love does not cause forgiveness, but forgiveness is what causes love. There's a difference. Forgiveness, the fact that what God has done for me, the forgiveness he has given to me, causes me to love him that much more. That's why I'll be, I'm willing to go to the nth degree to whatever it may be for Christ because of what he has forgiven me of. His forgiveness for me dictates how much I'll love for him, not the other way around. And if God's done a great work in your life, then that ought to cause you and I to want to do more for him out of what he's done. I'm a firm believer, and it goes against everything that everybody wants us to believe. I'm, 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 I'm swimming against the tide. Because what I say is, look, for people to be called by God, if it's this church or any other church, guess what? We should not have to beg and plead for people to do. We ought to do out of the great things God has done for us. We ought to have the I can't help it. I want to. The book we're going through on Wednesday night says, I will. No conditions asked. I will just do it. Why? Because I realize what God has done for me. Are you kidding me? We got to run around here worried about who's going who's gonna to clean the church? That should be a no-brainer. If nobody else in the church wants to do it, guess what? If you've got that attitude, I will, you'll do it. So guess what, Pastor? I don't know if we, if we have anybody or not, but guess what? I'm going to do it. 
I will. We ain't got nobody to, to, to shovel the sidewalks when it snows. Pastor, guess what? I'll do it. And not wait till the last minute to do it, but just do it. You need somebody in the kitchen? I will. You need somebody to clean toilets? I will. You need somebody to teach Sunday school? I will. Why? Because of the great love that God has shared about us. If God saved me and forgive me of all that he's done, how much love do I have for him? Don't tell us we have great love for God and we get to wrestle and fight and worry about the mundane things of this life. Step up. Do it. Go against your feelings and my feelings. I may not feel like it. Did I feel like coming here yesterday afternoon and shoveling snow on the sidewalk? Not necessarily, but I understood something. It was nice and sunny out. I said to myself, this is a good time to do this because it's going to melt. Because I don't like throwing a bunch of salt out there on the sidewalks and stuff. And then we all trample it in and mess up our floors and stuff. So I came over around 2.30, 2 o'clock, whatever it was, and I shoveled. Most of the line was melted. No brainer. My question is, how many other people thought about that? Oh, you may have thought about it, but you, like many times, like I said, well, somebody else will do it. No, 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 no. She got it. She understood. She gave what she had of the very best that she had. She was pouring this oil on his feet. Somebody said, he's not wasting it on his feet. And she was using her own hair on his feet. See, I learned something years ago that a lot of times we don't get in terms of leadership. I was talking with these other pastors in the community. We're trying to do something this summer with all the churches. And I I was teasing them. I said, I I, I go to to the, the, the council meeting up at Cedarville College. And all these guys, I read these books, and these guys, got, they got their own personal assistants, and they got all these people on their staff, and they're running around, and they do their little scheduling, and this, and that, and the other, and all this thing is great. And I said, guess what? In my context, and maybe yours too, I don't know, but they agree with me. We're the same way. It's the pastor that has to do everything, typically. I'm not beyond cleaning toilets. I've done it. I'm not beyond vacuuming the church. I've done it. I'm not beyond cleaning windows. I've done it. I'm not beyond sweeping and mopping and shoveling snow. I do it. Why? Because I got the attitude, I will. Nothing is too great for me when it comes to this church. Nothing. If nobody else does it, I will do it. Period. That's how it ought to be with each one of us. This is our church. We've been called by God. Don't tell me that because you're a leader. Don't tell me because you're out front that you are are dismissing yourself from doing things God wants us to do. We can't do that. We got to have the attitude, guess what? I'll do it. Until the change comes and somebody says, by the way, you know what, Pastor? You know what, brother? You don't have to do that anymore. I'll do it for you. I'll do it. I got it. I got this. But until then, we got to be able to say, I will. And these books we've been going through talks about it's not about your and my personal preference. It's about doing it for the glory of God. That's what it's all about. That's what she got. She got it. She had been delivered from much. And she understood. And this is what Jesus tells her. 
She said, you gave me no kiss? You didn't wipe my hair? She's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell, her, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. What better news to get from Jesus himself? Oh, guess what? You and I are, are like that woman. Guess what? Your sins, my sins, which are many, are forgiven. Amen? Better news than that, he's going to tell her. He says, he said that your sins, which your sins are forgiven. The best news. The best news I ever got wasn't not when I was at the hospital with my wife and not that the fact that she had a baby. And he said, it's a boy. It's a boy. It's a girl. That was great news. The greatest news I got wasn't when my wife finally said, yeah, I will marry you. That was great. She kept me waiting for a couple days. She said, eh, let me think about this. I said, great, think about it. But if you decide no, I'm moving on. <laughs> and there may be somebody else out there the Lord will bring into my life. That was good news. That was great news. My son getting engaged, that was great news. But the best news, the greatest news I ever received was when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. That's the best news I ever got. Jesus paid a debt for me that I could not pay for myself. There's nothing I could do. All the things that I talked about doing this, that does not pay for my sins. Jesus going to a cross. Suffered, bled, and died, went into the grave, and getting up out of the grave on the third day morning with all power of heaven and earth. That was the best news. He was able to say, Byron, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. That's the best news I could ever got. And that's what I live on even today. How could I not do for God? How can I not serve God? How can I not live for God? How can I all be about God in light of what he's done for me? And then, of course, you always have those that are sitting around being sidewalk superintendents. Oh, excuse me. Well, who do you think he is? Okay? Look what he did with Jesus. See, Jesus is already my example. That's why I don't get upset when people look at me who are strange and weird and all that. That don't bother me. He did to Jesus. Who is this? Who are you thinking? <laughs> Who's this? What? what do you mean, who's this? Who even forgives? Who does he think he is? Who's this dude? He said he forgives sins? No, he's, is he serious? Are you kidding me? He's saying he forgives sins? Jesus already knew it. He just tells her, he says to the woman, your faith. That's what does it. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. G.B. Card, I love what he says. He says, her love was not the ground of pardon that she had come to seek. She didn't come to Jesus to seek a pardon, but the proof of a pardon 
But the proof of the pardon was the fact that she acknowledged it when she came. She didn't come to get forgiveness for Jesus when she was at it. She already had gotten forgiveness. She had already been pardoned. The fact that she was pardoned is the reason why she came. My question, why did you come? If you should be here today because you realize the pardon that you received. And you're coming not to get something, but you're coming to give something back. Ah, thank you, Jesus. Oh, God is good. God is good. I ain't got to say it all the time because I already know that. God is good. Looks beyond our mess. Looks beyond our faults. And every day that you and I live, he meets us on the need street, the need street of our life. I need Jesus more today than I did yesterday. If my Lord wakes me up tomorrow, I'll need him even more tomorrow. That's why God is good. To love God is to love other Christians. 1 John 4, 19 and 20. Brings it down to the simplicity of what it is that means to love. 1 John. When we first started our church, I went through the gospel of 1 John. It's one of the first books we dealt with many, 11 years ago. For those of you who weren't here at the time. Went through that whole book, but I had to bring that back. But 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 19. You want to know how we love? We love because he what? First loved us. You and I can't love without God loving us. We don't know what love is. When you experience the love of God, that's what gives you the love, the ability to love. If you have not experienced that love, then you don't know how to love. We love because he first loved us. If, condition, if anyone says, I love God, be careful. I love God and hate his brother. You're a liar. Man, Pastor, that's awful strong. No, I ain't strong. That's the truth. It's not my truth. It's God's truth. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar? For, who does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's pretty self-explanatory. Okay, I need to say much more about that. And this commandment we have from him, not an option, a commandment. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think he said commandment in there somewhere, did he not? And this commandment we have from him. Who's him? We have from Jesus. See, sometimes people think like they're accused of, of, of making up stuff and bringing stuff out. Where's that at? Where's this at? Well, there you got it right there. I mean, you don't have to go far to find it. This commandment we have from him. That whoever loves God. If you, do you love God? Do you love God? Oh, great. Then you must love your brother also. You can't have love of God and not love your brother. He just told you that. You can't say, I love God, whom you have not seen, and not love your brother, who you see. It's an impossibility. It doesn't go together. For if you do that, you become a liar. Ooh, Jesus, I need to go back and pray that I get myself right. 
Her works were the proof of her faith. I don't work to get saved. I work because I am saved. All the stuff I talked about doing this, that don't mean nothing. God don't give me extra brownie points for doing anything. But what he wants me to do is if my mouth says I have received Christ, I profess with my mouth I know Jesus, then my works, my words, my actions, my deeds, how I live will show a dying world that, yes, it is true as a fruit of his or her life. Read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. She was told by Jesus. The assurance of her salvation was not in what the crowd was saying. The assurance of her salvation was in the word of Jesus. I don't think I say I am saved. I know I am saved. I know it. As I'm looking at you, as I'm seeing us in this context, as sure as I'm looking at you, is as sure as I know I'm saved. I do not go to bed, or I do not live my life with the fact that I might die and go to hell. Not me, baby. No, 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 no. I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able. He's able, not I'm able. He's able to do far to bully more. What more can I say? He exceeds my wildest expectation. God wants a people to live for him. God wants Cornerstone Baptist Church. I want to talk about us. I can't talk about everybody else. I can talk about it. He wants us to be that compelling community that when people look at our church, they don't get it. They say, wait a minute, how are they pulling this thing off? We're pulling it off by God's grace. We're pulling it off by God's mercy. I'll close with this and I'm done. I watched Dr. Charles Stanley. And when they pan around this congregation, he's got a big, he's got a big church, 10,000 or more, I guess. I don't know. One of the things I notice that amongst a lot of the younger people, there's some gray hairs in here. Some older folks. Now, it used to be back in the day that when you got to a certain age, the younger people, out of respect, used to say, you know what? We got this. There's no sense in you working as hard. Because they, get, they were taught the vision and were taught the responsibility. But you know what I'm watching that happens in our church? And it's not anybody, I'm not going to blame any particular people or group, but the old people are still having to do way more than they should have to do. Why? Because some of the younger ones haven't got it yet. Now, are old folks getting tired? Oh, yeah. And they're like, you know what, I'm tired of doing this. I just need to, <laughs> you just don't know. I've been, I've been doing this for a long time. Well, yeah, I do know. I know more than you think I know. But until, <laughs> don't ask me when it's going to happen, but until that group rises up, that next generation, until they get it in their heads, wait a minute, I'm, listen, Tony, you, me, David, Sheila, Missy, all some of us other ones, 
Remember back in the day when we were young and we used to look back towards some of those ones a little bit older than we are? We never thought in our minds that we would be where our parents in that generation were. But guess what? We're now there. Now, what's behind us? Whatever's behind us, we've got to teach them and pull them along to be what we were back then. See, there was a time and a day when you didn't have to tell people about coming to church was a big deal. They just came. Whether you were saved or not, your mama, your grandma, somebody said, you're going to be in church. They may sat home, did their thing, smoked their cigarettes, drank their coffee, but they told you as a young whippers, oh, oh yeah, you're going to church. Used to be a day that the CME people would show up. Christmas, Mother's Day, Easter. They, would, they may not come to church any other day, but on Mother's Day, Mama's going to be in church. I guess I'll go to church too. You know what? We ain't living in that day no more. People just don't go to church. Be it Mother's Day, be it Easter, be it, they don't look at you like, no, I don't go any other time. I don't see the necessity of coming today. That's the world we live in. Sad. But if God has ever done anything for you, then you and I need to say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to be honest. I'm tired. I am tired. I'm tired of fighting the same battles. I'm tired of fighting the same folks. I'm tired. I'm just tired. So let me just go. Time for me to move on. Time for me to just step out. Say, you know what? You know what, Lord? They don't want to listen. I'll be like, they don't want to hear the. They don't want to hear the voice anymore. They need another voice. But then something happens. The Spirit of God comes alongside and says, boy, who do you think called you? You didn't call yourself. And Cornerstone Baptist Church didn't call you. I called you. And I didn't tell you that the way was going to be easy. I didn't tell you it was going to be easy. Did I tell you it was going to be easy? Let me tell you something, Brother Greg. Dealing with usums is a hard thing. Because we don't see the forest for the trees. We're like the psalmist. I am a tree planted by the rivers of water. And I ain't going to be moved. Okay. And you know what I'm praying? Oh, I may not be a move, but God can move you. I'm praying. Move. Boy, get up off your, get off, off your fat behind and be about kingdom building. You give them the best that you got. You preach the word of God. You stand up there and tell a dying world what thus saith the Lord. And if they elect not to hear you, it won't be because of you. It'll be because of them. And when they face the consequence, you just make sure your conscience is clear. So that's why I preach like I do because God wants us to be better than we are. And I can't do that by always being Mr. Nice Guy, doing everything everybody likes. No, 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 no. I got to do what the Lord wants us to do. And we could be so much better. It should not fall on the responsibility. It should not fall on just a few. There's enough work for everybody to do something. And my plea and my call 
if God has done a great thing in your life, then you and I have no other responsibility but to do a great thing for him.